Well, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the third chapter of the Old Testament book of Daniel, which is page 627 in our church Bibles, if that would be of some help. We're going to read uh, a portion of Daniel chapter 3, and then we're going to pray and ask God for his help. If you're new or visiting, the reason why we're here this morning is um, middle September, we began working through Daniel verse by verse, and so the reason why we're here is because this is the place we should be. So, just to let you know that. Well, let's get right to it, shall we? Chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image of the king, that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations of men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship, they will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray briefly. Father, as we turn to your word, we earnestly seek your help to speak truly and properly and to be able to listen humbly and actively welcoming your word in order that we would be brought to a living faith 
and a secure trust in Jesus Christ. Hear our cry this morning, Father, for Jesus' sake in these things. Amen. Well, what was it which compelled men and women all throughout history to take such stands as we read this morning for the God of the Bible and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ? What compelled, for example, William Carey to to sail on a ship for five months all the way to India and to endure hostility and rejection going seven years until he saw his first convert? What gave him the burst of energy, the stamina of mind, the, the, the staying power, if you would, to leave India, or England, excuse me, go to India, stay and suffer and wait on God? What was it which compelled Helen Rosevere to, to leave her polished life in Cambridge to serve Christ in the Congo in the 1960s? She was taken prisoner by uh, rebel forces. She went through multiple beatings and multiple rapings. Then, after her release and her recovery, she returns to the Congo in 1966 to serve her Christ. So, so what was it which compelled uh, Carrie and Rosevere and other servants of God, known but also unknown? Loved ones, it was this. It was the sovereign grace of God. That there are those out of every nation, out of every tribe and language, every race, every neighborhood, every community, every street, every family, that there are people God wills to save and people who need to know that God is able to save. And this same sovereign grace of God chose Daniel and chose his three friends to be a witness for God in these things as exiles in the place that God put them, in the time that he put them, and in the circumstances which were less than desirable he put them in, and he kept them there in order that his sovereign power could be displayed and people would be saved. And what is true for them is equally true for every one of us who claims devotion to Jesus Christ. Loved ones, the sovereignty of God and God's will to save They are tied together. They are united in purpose. God's not beating his chest like a gorilla to strut his stuff in his sovereignty. No, God exercises his sovereignty in order that people will be saved. Now, even just a low-level reading of the Bible will reveal that. Acts chapter 17, verse 26, God puts people in exact times, Paul preached, in exact places. Why? Why exact times? Why in exact places? So that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him. Sovereignty and salvation are mutually inclusive. So yes, God is sovereignly building his kingdom, which means nations will rise and they will fall and then soon be no more as God wills. However, and listen carefully, the kingdom building is as a result of the good news of the gospel. You see, God wants to save men and he wants to save women and young people. So, so the arrival of the kingdom 
is good news. God saves. There's still time. The arrival of the kingdom is not, we win. It's not, I told you so. It's not, we're on the winning team. That's silly. And this sovereignty and this saving power is what took place in chapter 1 of Daniel. It's what took place again in chapter 2. And now we're going to see it's the exact same thing which takes place in chapter 3. Now chapter 3 is probably one of the better known stories. Chapter 2 ends with the four Israelites being promoted as a result of God giving Daniel the grace and the mercy to be able to do two things, tell the king his dream, and then interpret the dream for him. And it appeared, if your Bible is open, you'll see this, that around verse 46 of chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has some kind of transformation, right? Because in verse 46, we find him saying and doing nice things to Daniel. Verse 47, he's saying nice things about God. Verse 48, he's giving nice things to Daniel. Daniel, in turn, true to form. Verse 49, secures nice positions for his colleagues. You want to say, wonderful. Everything's perfect. Nebuchadnezzar is giving praise to Daniel's God. The Fantastic Four are promoted. Well, you know, they ought to make a, they ought to make a movie about that. In fact, they, already, they should write a book. Here it is. The Promotion Principle. You know, how to get promotion. It would be great. Very inspirational, but for the fact that the story isn't over. (laughs) Because we read in verse 1 that Nebuchadnezzar makes a 90 feet high and 9 feet wide image of gold. And he sets it up in the plain of Dura. The plain of Dura, as I bet you know, is where the Tower of Babel was beginning to be built all those years ago. And this is where men and women wanted to demonstrate their power and demonstrate their control over everything. And God put the whole thing away. Remember, he confused their speech and he spread them out. And here, about nine years removed from the events of chapter 2, Daniel, of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar decides to set up this image. So initially, Nebuchadnezzar's response as he was confronted by the miracle of chapter 2, was that he was amazed by it. But time told that he wasn't changed by it. Amazed, but not changed. In other words, strong convictions often come short of true conversions. His, His belief didn't match and didn't change his behavior. And it, this happens all the time. This is, this is man as man. God shows mercy God gives a miracle to a person in their life and for a while they appear all in. But time goes on and maybe even difficulties arise. The story unfolds. They weren't as they were in the beginning. And what appears to be happening here is that Nebuchadnezzar's initial response to God's power has now become kind of frittered away. Nine years has elapsed, (laughs) and instead of growing better, he remains the same, or perhaps he's worse. Now, we're not told what it was which caused Nebuchadnezzar to build this image. Whatever it was, it was at least this. It was a symbol of power of the nation of Babylon And probably the king. 
And this is why in the unfolding story of the Bible, Babylon and Jerusalem, they will emerge again and again from the first book of the Bible to the last book of the Bible. Babylon is representative of man as man and their proud defiance against God. It's the first thing this Babylonian city did. Jerusalem, representative of God and his revelation and the submission of his people to his law, to his commands, and then ultimately to his son. Babylon is the city of man. Jerusalem is the eternal city, the city of God. Therefore, when Nebuchadnezzar builds this golden image, he is saying in not so many words, I oppose God. And loved ones, that happens every time anyone, anyone sins and breaks God's law and breaks God's commands. We are saying in our sin, we oppose God. And Nebuchadnezzar is also seeking here what was done the very first time Something was built on this plane, seeking to make a name for himself, a name above God's name, which again happens every time anyone sins. When we sin, we say, I oppose God. I am above God. I know better than God. I have decided like I am a God and I will go my own way and follow my own mind. That's sin. So the king's image is set up by the king And I hope you noticed my inflection that I was trying to give because when you read these verses, there's this repetitive phrase, set up, set up, at least nine times by my count. And the reason why that is happening is because the writer's trying to tell us something. There's a point he's trying to make, right? So he can't highlight the point. He can't underline the point. He can't change the font. So he uses repetition to make a point. Nebuchadnezzar, in his setting up of this golden image is opposing God. Why? Chapter 2, verse 21. Do you see it there if your Bible's open? Because God sets up kings and God brings them down. Nebuchadnezzar in his pride, he sets up this image determining, well, maybe not. Maybe God can set up, but maybe I can set up and put down. Hence the setting up of this image. Okay, so then after he sets up, he summons. And again, there's another device being used by Daniel, the writer here, and it's a lot of irony. It's kind of double meaning. It's almost humorous, right? I mean, look at verse 2 in just short succession. The satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other officials. And then you catch your breath. And then he does it all over again in verse 3. Satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, and so on. The same type of thing when he lists all the musical instruments in the band. Look at verse 5, verse 9, verse 15. He repeats every one. Why? Well, this is irony. And those of you who enjoy writing or teach it, you probably pick this up. This is all a joke. The king gets his best and brightest. They're out there, but you know, they don't really matter. They're just kind of rolled in and they're kind of rolled out. Nebuchadnezzar sets up the image. Nebuchadnezzar summons his best so they can bow. You bow or you'll burn. This is how I have it in my mind. Sets up, summons, band plays, bow, or you'll burn. Quite a worship service. Verse 4. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, this is what you're commanded to do. This is important. Nations and peoples of every language, as soon as you hear the band play, paraphrase, 
You have to fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. If you don't, verse 6, you'll burn. Sets up, summons, band plays, bow, or you'll burn. So what you need to see is this, uh, this worship means nothing. Worship the image of gold. Is it plated or is it filled with gold? I can't be sure. None of my sources were sure either. This is what I know. He said, worship or you'll burn. And by the way, the Babylonians, they were notorious for burning people to a crisp. This wasn't an idle threat. They would tend to keep these furnaces alive. So that any time the king said, burn them, they would burn. I have set up this image and I want, verse 4, do you see this? Universal submission to this monument, right? This is for all the people of all the nations of every language. Universal submission to this monument. Verse 4, verse 7. Now, you got to be tracking with me here. Because if you know your Bible, you know that's how the Bible ends. Universal submission that it will be all people of all nations of every language doing what? They will be bowing down before the throne of Almighty God, declaring that He is God and there is no other. And man as man will be declaring and bowing. And if they are not God's people, then then what will be done? They will be eternally condemned in a place the Bible calls hell, where there is either symbolically or really truly what? We're not going to answer the question, but either symbolically or really truly what? fire and the people of God will gladly bow their lives have been changed by the sovereign grace of God in Jesus those who refuse those who have refused Jesus in their time on this earth they will be judged and either symbolically or actually they will burn so I want you to see you see this little scene is a counterfeit it's an imitation of the last day The evil one has no imagination. This is a counterfeit of the last day where God will judge the living and the dead and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of his Father. So, then, and up till then and now, what you find in the Bible and what you find in history is that man as man will will set up these little monuments. They They will... Build their little kingdoms for universal worship in opposition to the final day when the kingdom of God shuts it all down. Now, loved ones, that just doesn't mean like kingdom, kingdoms, you know, like nations. It could be where we've determined to build up our own little kingdom and we're going to go way far away where nobody can bug us and we're going to live life as we choose. We're going to have our little kingdom and we don't really care if people bow as long as we bow to the king of our kingdom, which might be us. So you see, this is why I tell you, Nebuchadnezzar is a picture of man as man. Opposing God, trying to be like God, citing God, and, and actually wanting devotion and worship like God. So whether it's Nebuchadnezzar striking up the band, whether it's King Herod striking down children, the opposition is real. It is real. Men and women opposing God, ignoring God's common grace, Romans 1, that there actually is a God, and ignoring amazing grace, the proclamation of the gospel as Jesus has presented to them, and they will not bow. And you see, remember, the original readers were who? They were the exiles. 
Why were they there? They were being punished. What was one of the sins that they committed? They committed idolatry, idol worship. Ezekiel 8, uh, Isaiah 58. They were neck deep in it. And so what they were doing pre-exile, they were twisting and perverting the image of God and they were fashioning their own version to suit their own needs. (laughs) Strain from God's self-revelation to them. So, so in Babylon, Babylon, it was worship the image or you'll die. In Judah, pre-exile, it was worship according to your own taste, according to your felt needs. Worship according to your own disposition, not to God's revelation. Okay, so what kind of person are you? Okay, we'll find a God for you. I mean, what's the big deal? It's worship. You know best. It's like God hasn't spoken how he would like us to worship him. It's like God hasn't said, this is what you do and this is what you don't do when you worship me. And you see, that's what makes verse 7 a very sad and sorry sight. The band plays, people bow to the image that the king set up. By the way, if you've ever read the Hunger Game books, which I have, really good, seen the movies, when I was working through this, I thought, this, this reminds me of Hunger Games. You have refined people, from the capital city, turned in upon themselves. They liked the high life. They wanted to continue. And so when the band plays, they will bow. When President Snow calls, they come running. There's no theology defining their movements. There's no in-heart truth given to the weight of the worship when they bow to their God. There's no heartfelt emotion. Their minds aren't being stirred by truth. It's just a threat. Band plays. We bow. We don't want to burn. Paul Simon, remember, and all the people bowed and prayed to the neon gods they made. And you see this picture over and over again in the world. People bowing to bells and shrines and candles and statues. We can't doubt their sincerity. But they are not bowing down at the place where God keeps all his appointments. At the cross of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You understand this. And as Christians, I hope we believe this. Any other bowing down is a denial of the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the only one qualified to save. And he is the only one able to save. Acts chapter 4 verse 11. He, the stone you builders rejected. This is Peter. That's Daniel 2, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation exists in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by men by which we must be saved. Let me say this to you. If you are here and you're wondering, you come into this event, if you would, and you're empty. If you're honest, you'd say you were bored. And worship means nothing to you. Your heart doesn't leap when we sing gospel phrases and we sing great things about Jesus Christ and you're just like dead. I can tell you with all the love in my heart, you are this way more than likely because you need a savior. You need a king. You need a friend. You need the Lord Jesus Christ. Spurgeon used to say, unconverted believers. You have an intellectual scent, but your heart is not changed. Judgment day, we remain this way. 
we'll be surprised when Jesus says what he says. And we can't get into his heaven. This matters. It matters. He sets up. This is Nebuchadnezzar. He summons. He asserts. Verse 8. Very crucial. At this time, astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. Verses 9 to 12. They tell the king what they, what he, what they already knew. This is a bit of a dig, isn't it? Verse 12. There are some of Jews. Some of those Jews. Your boys. Right? Here we go. You gave them the post, O king. You set them over us. There's jealousy here. There's animosity you decided, king, and look what happened. Verse 12b, they pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. In other words, they're like a three-year-old. They're not doing what you said. Let me ask you a question. When I was reading this, the astrologers here, they sound like the aha people. Do you know the aha people? These are the kind of people uh, who, who love to find things wrong with others, in others, about others. And then when they find them, which isn't really hard because we're fallen people, right? A three-year-old could find wrong things about me. But the point is, they find them and they, and they tell on them. Aha! <laughs> I got you. And you know, every time this happens that I know of in the Bible, the aha people, they're usually on the bad side of the equation. Pharisees. They try to corner Jesus. They pound him with questions and scenarios. Why? Because they want to get the right answer? No. They want to be able to say, Aha! We caught you. Now you really have to die. Why? Because they were filled with jealousy and they were filled with malice towards the Son of God. The same thing happened to Nehemiah. Same thing happened to Ezra. O king, Nehemiah is planning a revolt. He's building that wall for all the wrong reasons. Aha, we caught him. O king, Ezra Ezra is part of that project. And if this happens, then you're not going to be able to collect your taxes. Aha, we got you. Why? It was just jealousy and malice. Nehemiah did in a few days what they could not and would not do in a few years. And they couldn't stand it. So true to form, the aha people, let's get rid of them. Or at least let's make them suffer. Make them bow. Therefore, verse 13 is true to form for the kingdom of evil. This is the work of the flesh. And Nebuchadnezzar, after he heard what they said and the way they said it, he was furious with rage. In fact, the, the Aramaic is he's hot. To play on words. He's hot. He's been provoked. He's furious. Which tells us a whole lot about him. Least of all this. It tells us that in some measure. King Nebuchadnezzar's identity. Was tied up in this golden image. His own standing was tied into that image. Uh, king they don't listen to you. Oh king they don't serve your God. And they do not worship the king that, image that you set up. Oh king. That said, it sets him off. Why? Because his standing is tied to this image. Parents and human beings, this is us. This is, this is us at times. They don't listen to us. We feel slighted and we are set ablaze. We get furious. Somehow our identity is tied up in our command. Somehow our identity is tied up in our perceived authority, tied up in our suggestion, whatever. And we feel slighted. And we are set to rage. And the Bible says this. This kind of anger, human anger, James chapter 1 verse 20. It doesn't produce the righteousness and the righteous life that God desires. 
This is, I'll tell you again, this is why King Nebuchadnezzar is man as man. He is us outside of Jesus. So the king has the three men brought in. He says to them, verse 14, is it true? I mean, he can't believe that they're actually doing this. Everybody listens to me. I mean, nobody wants to burn. Is this true? Verse 15, he gives them another chance. Guys, the band's gonna come out for an encore. If the band plays, you fall down and worship the image, terrific. Everything's good. We can go home and have a nice lunch. However, if you do not worship the image I am set up, when the band plays, all bets are off. And within a few seconds, I'm throwing you into that furnace. And then look what he says at the end of verse 15. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? In other words, Nebuchadnezzar is, is telling these three guys, you shall have no other gods before me. And you see, what we discover about Nebuchadnezzar, and this is, this is just so crazy true. Despite all the pomp and circumstance he arranged for his worship service to give the impression that he must be a really religious guy, Nebuchadnezzar believes in a closed universe. He is the voice of the materialist. He just believes in himself. He thinks that he can arrange things, and with a big enough threat behind it, he will get his desired result. What God can help you now? Now, what does that bring to mind? It should bring to mind the cross of Jesus Christ, the Jewish elite. They're planning everything. And so far, everything is going according to plan. Got Judas to do his thing. This is terrific. Jesus is hanging on a cross. Well done, men. Wonderful. We are right. And remember what they said to Jesus on the cross? You saved others. Can you save yourself? And then he, they say, Who's going to rescue you now? Verse 15, what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Okay, what kind of hand? I mean, let's be brutally honest. He's just a man. He burps. He uses the bathroom. He needs to sleep every day or he could die. (laughs) Nebuchadnezzar has some problems. He's human. What God can save you from me? So whatever's happening here, Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's in charge. And you'll notice that the three men, they don't even give it a wink, do they? They don't need to pray. They don't need to think. They don't need to congregate. The decision is easy. They were well taught the commandments of God. They attended kids in the kingdom. (laughs) They they knew that if they did what they would do or ask, uh, the Commandments one and two would be broken. So in their mind, the choice was this. God's wrath on our sin or Nehemiah's wrath on our unwillingness to sin against God. That was it. God's wrath on our sin or Nehemiah's wrath on our unwillingness to sin against God. Uh, Proverbs 29, uh, 25. The fear of man will prove to be a snare. They're God's people. God's grace pervaded their existence. The choice to them was obvious. Now, loved ones, do not think this was a conviction, a personal conviction. This is not a conviction in the strictest sense of the world because a conviction is a debatable matter, right? Some are free to do it. Others, because of conscience, they can't do it. This is not a debatable matter. This is a command from God. Exodus 20, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, You shall have no other gods before me. You can't make any images, right? Heaven above, earth beneath, water below. You shall not bow down to them 
or worship them. Very straightforward. And you see the reply of these three men? Equally straightforward. Verse 16, king, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. True, and and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. We're not going to disobey commandments one and two, O king. Now we need to shut this down. Um, just the sermon, not everything. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. So ask yourself this question. If you were there and you were them, would you bow down to the image of gold? Okay. If you're sensible, you quiet your mind from any kind of bravado here. Why do you say that? I just remember there was a guy named Peter. And he had a lot of fantastic things to say right before he denied his Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, let's wrap this up by thinking things through. Just a few thoughts. First, the three men were able to serve a pagan king for at least 12 years now. And... For 12 years up to this moment when they went into service, their devotion to God never really conflicted with their service to the king. And the power of God, which gave them a keen intellect, chapter 1, knowledge and understanding, enabled them to know the difference between a commandment and a personal conviction. So it wasn't until God's commandment was challenged and not a conviction that they held that their problem with the state, the government, The king was revealed. And it would be very good for us to understand the difference then between our personal conviction and God's clear command. And even matters of conscience should submit to God's revealed truth. This was a command. This wasn't a conviction. Second, God had protected these men at the start of the exile. He graced them. He he did this so they would glorify him in and throughout their exile. And they did. And because they glorified God, people are going to be saved. So what they did was, they obeyed the words of Jesus some 600 years after this event. Remember, if you love me, this is so simple. If you love me, you will keep my commands. So they love God. And they reveal their love for God in their obedience and in their faith. Both are real to them. Simple obedience to God's clear command. Finally, these men under God, they show us a pattern of good decision-making. Okay? Good decision-making, but only for good questions. So let me be really straight with you. If you're going to try to make a decision and use this principle for some personal benefit, you know, just having to do with you, this won't help you. This text has to do with the reason why we were created. We were created to glorify God and we were created to bring his salvation message to all people. That's why we were created. Glorify God and bring his saving message to all people. So this principle that I'm going to give is a way to make good decisions but only for good questions. Number one, Believe and obey God's truth. King, we are not bowing down 
God's word said not to. Honey, I love you, but we're not married, so I'm not going to sleep with you. I'm not going to slander you. I will not lie about you. I will obey my leaders. Believe and obey God's truth. Second, trust God. We, we don't need to defend ourselves, king. If you throw us in the blazing furnace, God's able to save us. Second principle, trust God. Third, think right thoughts about God. Leave the fallout of your decision to God. But if he, God, if God decides not to save us, and we're going to leave that up to him, we're still not bowing. Why? God said so. Very rational. God doesn't save everybody all the time. And I'd be really careful if someone can say, I can give you a sermon and I can write you a book that says this is how you get saved from death all the time. Can you do that for me? Believe and obey God's truth. Trust God. Think right, rational, sound thoughts about God and then leave the fallout to God because whether we live or die, Romans 14, we belong, if you're a Christian, we belong to the Lord. A long time ago, Archbishop William Temple said this, when we abandon the implications of the cross, we remove the ability for good decision-making. This is what he's suggesting. When we forget about the cross, what it has accomplished for us, the great great mercy that God has demonstrated in us, our obligation to it. When we forget about the cross and we make decisions, it will be a bad decision no matter how much we may personally prosper in this short stretch of life. If the cross... The gospel isn't in every one of our choices, decisions. We we lose the ability to make a good decision. Why is that true? Because God keeps all his appointments at the foot of the cross. Son, you're going you're gonna to go to earth and you're going to live a spotless life and you're going to die a horrible death. Do you trust me? Hebrews 10. Here I am, O God. I've come to do your will. Okay, son, there's going to come a moment of truth. It's going to be really hard. You're going to be in a garden and you're going to sweat like great drops of blood and you're going to be frightened. In fact, it's going to feel like you're having a nervous breakdown. Oh, Father, if you're willing, let this cup pass. But, you know, I trust you. Let your will be done. And he goes and he dies. Three days later, God raises him from the dead. He lives. He lives forever. And people are saved from from being eternally condemned now because of Jesus. How did that happen? Jesus obeyed God. Jesus trusted God. Jesus left the fallout to God. What a great choice, Jesus. What a great choice. When God calls us to obedience, he will take care of us in our obedience. If that means we live, 
terrific. We live. If that means we die, we die. But for now and for always, if you're a Christian, whether we live or whether we die, we belong to the Lord. That's our comfort. That's our comfort. Let's, let's pray. Our gracious God and King, we thank you that you are being revealed in Daniel of a sovereign God who wills to save people. And Father, we thank you that as you call people in, as you call people in, Father, they will come. And we thank you that in your sovereignty, your salvation is clear. That you do not work your sovereignty to strut your stuff. You work your sovereignty to save sinners like me. Now, Father, help us to grasp this. Help us to truly understand what is happening in these stories beyond, beyond just the simplicity of them. There are big truths that we need to enjoy and understand. Please make it so, Father, for Jesus' sake. And have mercy and bless your people today as we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.